Would you stand with me as we read? Job chapter 28. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the furthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to the light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ifar, in precious onyx, or sapphire, gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for the jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way of it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned to the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out, and he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. The word of the Lord. This morning, we're after a better understanding of wisdom. Uh, What is wisdom? How would you define that idea? Are you wise? How would you decide? Wisdom is something that uh, many people talk about, we all aspire to, and I think we would in general think about wisdom as a process by which we order our lives and reorder them and refine them so that they navigate the challenges that we experience better. As an example of a common approach uh, to wisdom, Harvard actually has a 
uh, a uh, program, a, a, a group dialogue with students who are coming in in order to uh, enhance their wisdom, to build them in wisdom, and they run freshman students through five exercises, which maybe you will glean some wisdom this morning. Are you ready? Number one, uh, make a list of how you uh, would like to spend your time, and then make a list of how you actually spend your time. And when you go through the list of how you want to spend your time, you write down things like, well, I want to read and practice an instrument and spend more time with my family. And then when you write down how you actually spend your time, it's uh, watching TV or playing video games, right? And you can imagine as the freshman realize the tension, and as you think about your own life, you would realize the tension between how you would say you want to spend your time and how you actually do. Of course, the exhortation there is to be is to order your time according to how you want to spend it, not how you are actually spending it. Number two, passion should inform priorities. Uh, the professor who runs this and was writing about it said talked about two student or a student who had come in and was uh, torn between uh, majoring in political science and majoring in chemistry and couldn't decide. And so the professor said, "Well, how do you spend your free time?" And she said, well, I'm uh, involved in these action groups, uh, the, this political party. I write for this political magazine. And he said, well, how much time do you spend in the lab in your free time? She said, why would I spend my free time in the lab? And he said, well, okay. And she, of course, proceeded forth and chose to be a political science major because she realized that in her leisure, what she's truly, which reveals what she's truly passionate about, she would never actually invest in the lab or chemistry. Number three, this is called the broad versus deep test, right? Would you rather be a generalist, uh, skilled and good at, at a number of different things, or would you rather be a specialist, right? Really outstanding and uniquely gifted in one particular area. That's going to shape how you invest your time and your energy. Number four is the core values exercise, Students are given a list of 25 words, which include words, as a, just as an example, dignity, love, fame, family, excellence, wealth, and wisdom. And then they're asked to choose five of the 25 as their most important core values. Then they're asked, is there any tension in your core values? And one student, as an example, said, well, I've selected family, and I've selected excellence, and by excellence, I aspire to be the most excellent such-and-such such surgeon in the country. And I realize that I don't know how to reconcile those two values. How am I going to be one of the most notable surgeons in the country and possibly committed, be committed to family? How am I going to balance that and bring those two things together? So to evaluating uh, tensions like that, and then lastly is the parable of the happy fisherman and the MBA student, which goes like this. There's an island somewhere in the world, and there's a happy uh, fisherman living on it. He goes out and he fishes for a couple hours every day, catches a few fish, and uh, feeds his family, sells a few to get what he needs, and spends the rest of his day hanging out with his family and taking a nap every day. And he's very happy. And the MBA, arrives, uh, MBA student arrives on the island and says, well, wait a minute. If we, uh, if we kind of reorganize your day and uh, embrace some new technology, we can quadruple uh, your catch, and then we can buy more boats, and we can offer an IPO, 
And uh, not only will you be much richer, uh, but you will be able to help more people. You'll be able to feed more people and give fish away as well uh, to people in need. And so do you want to be, uh, live a quiet and happy life? Or do you want to make a larger mark on the world? Uh, how, how much of a calling do you feel to change the world? And so the whole point of this exercise starts to say, okay, what really drives you? What are your passions? What are your longings? Just order your life that way. And then you will not only relieve tension, but you will actually achieve the happiness you desire. And uh, in Harvard's words, this is wisdom. Right? Is it, is it wisdom? Not bad questions, I don't think. Helpful in some ways, but is it, is it really wisdom? Right? What is, is wisdom? Uh, Job chapter 28 is a little bit odd, and it's, uh, it's a little bit disputed, not in any great way, but I'll just explain to you what I mean by that. Um, just in terms of, of marking today with a flag in terms of our series, uh, Job uh, is righteous and without sin. Uh, God permits Satan to visit him with two different rounds of uh, suffering and affliction. Uh, Job then laments for an entire chapter in the trash heap. Uh, his sores have broken out on his body, scraping his body with the pot shirt. And uh, then his, his friends who have shown up, uh, three of them are sitting next to him. And so begins three rounds of dialogue where each friend speaks. Job responds to each friend. And then it starts over again. It goes, Bildad, or Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. It does the three again. Now the third dialogue, right? Uh, we did all of the first dialogue. We did all of the second cycle. And the third cycle we're skipping because it's simply repetitive of the first two. Interestingly, Zophar doesn't speak in the third cycle. And people aren't sure what to make of that. Some people think that it's simply symbolic that the conversation has broken down. Job and his friends are at an impasse, right? They've been hammering at each other over and over again. There's nothing left to be said. Job is about to summarize his case, right? To kind of make his, um, his concluding argument before God and uh, the readers. But right here you have chapter 28, which is it's unlikely that it's intended to be the words of Job. Why? Well, in 29.1, it says Job again begins to speak. Even more than that wouldn't necessarily mean that 28 is in the words of Job's, but if you look at 26.1, 27.1, and 29.1, all identify Job as the speaker. 28 does not. On top of that, the tone, the, com- uh, uh, the complexion, if you will, of the chapter is completely different than what Job has been saying, how he's been speaking, and the subjects he's been taking up. So this has led most scholars to conclude that chapter 28 is the narrator coming in and kind of giving you a landmark in the midst of how the book is unfolding. In other words, the narrator has come in and said, yes, all right, right now, reader, right, if you've been tracking with the story of Job, you should be very anxious for God to show up because Job has been demanding it for a long time. He's been making his case and saying, I am righteous and I deserve a trial, and if God would show up then I would, and we had the trial, I would be vindicated. And we're kind of waiting. But the narrator drops down in chapter 28 and says, listen, this isn't just about God showing up for a trial. This is about wisdom. Job is wisdom literature. It's grouped with the wisdom literature of the Old Testament for a reason. We're not simply about Job being vindicated in the sense of a trial. 
uh, the narrator is reminding us that if we walk away with Job, from Job, having listened to Job, we will be wiser for it. But what does that wisdom look like? It may look different than you expect. So, let, uh, with that introduction, let's consider Job 28. And the way that Job 28 uh, starts is to point out that human ingenuity, the human pursuit of understanding the world and mastering it, is really very impressive. Right? Apart from all of the other animals, we have really been marked out in our ability to engage our environment and to make something of it. And uh, the metaphor that the author is using in chapter 28 is that of mining. Right? Big deal in the ancient world where you start to dig up the earth and discover the treasures that are underneath and the uh, mechanical engineering that's involved to uh, make this happen. And so in verses 1 through 3, you see silver, gold, iron, and copper all mentioned. That which has to be taken from the ground and uh, purified, processed in order to be uh, useful. What has been required of man in verse 3 is that we have entered the darkness. We've dug shafts and valleys that burrow into the earth. And while the surface of the earth produces bread, underneath the earth is riches. And it's this notion that humanity has demonstrated the ability to um, not, not know, well, first to perceive that there are riches there. Right? This is where you get the falcon's eye has not seen it. The keenest eyesight in the ancient world, in the animal kingdom, has not perceived the wealth that is in the earth. And if you take the noblest beast, the lion, he just walks over the top of it. But what has humanity done? We've realized the wealth that is there. In verse 9, we've overturned mountains by the roots. In verse 10, we've cut channels in the rocks. In verse 11, we've dammed up streams. In verse 11 uh, as well, we've brought that which is hidden to light. Right? The author's intent is to say that human ingenuity has been remarkable. We have gone into the dark places. We have discovered that which is precious. And we have figured out how to extract it from the earth and to make the most of its wealth. And in this we're unique and quite impressive. And we could make, you know, we could say all the more so today. We've mapped the human genome. In my lifetime there should be a trip to Mars. So with genetic engineering, my kids should expect to live unhindered past 100. Right? We, our ingenuity is impressive. Our ability, even just, what was it a week ago, that uh, the federal government permitted that um, we can now experiment with you know, uh, treating and uh, modifying the human genome with animal genomes? Right? But how long before, uh, well, who knows what that will yield? Right? But our ingenuity is remarkable. We don't stop. We continue to explore that which is hidden and to see it revealed, and not only for wealth, but for the benefit of humanity and for uh, the increase of our knowledge, which is all well and good, but it doesn't really uh, deliver wisdom to us, right? Would we necessarily say that we're wiser as a result of all of our ingenuity, of all of our accomplishments? Has that made us particularly more godly or more holy if we are going to tie that to wisdom? 
We see that's just the problem that comes up in, uh, in chapter uh, 28. In fact, if you look at verses 12 and four, through 14, there are two problems. The first is, after the celebration of human ingenuity, in verse 12 the author says, but where shall wisdom be found? We've extracted all of the most precious wealth from the earth. We have been finders and seekers and, and lifters, but we are unable to actually locate wisdom. We can't find it. That's not our only problem. It goes on, where is the place of understanding? Our second problem is in 13a, man does not know its worth. Even if we could find wisdom, we don't value it appropriately. We value other things instead of it. These are two big problems. Two, in some ways, insurmountable problems. We look uh, for wisdom so often in the wrong place. David Brooks is a a conservative columnist I like uh, to read, and he's really quite interesting to me, particularly because he writes uh, for for a very big, he has a very large national presence. But a few years ago, uh, he, uh, I, don't, I don't know that it's that overt publicly. It's certainly overt if you know what you're looking for in his articles. He converted to Christianity, uh, grew up Jewish, and has been a uh, u- somewhat unique voice on the national spectrum, uh, offering a perspective of faith in national uh, debates, at least quietly so. But uh, his articles, which used to j- be just about politics have turned more so over the last few years to be about meaning and purpose uh, and identity. And so people are kind of wondering what's going on with him and asking, and he's interviewed recently. And the uh, interviewer pointed out that, you know, you used to be enamored by social science, brain science and how that was informing how human beings behaved and helping us to understand humans better, but you don't seem so enamored with it anymore. And Brooks said, yeah, you're right. This is what he said. Yes, I'd written this book, The Social Animal, and it had a lot of social scientists in it. I don't abandon that stuff. It's very useful. But I've really become disillusioned, not completely, but halfway disillusioned with neuroscience. Ten years ago, I thought that what was going on, pardon me, I thought that what was going to teach us a lot about who we are, and it does a little. It teaches you the importance of emotion, how the amygdala is involved in everything, But I don't think neuroscience has taught us anything that George Eliot didn't already know. It doesn't at all solve the problem of meaning. So I felt I had to go back to the the Savolchiks or the Nybers or George Eliot or Dostoevsky who didn't have MRI machines but were pretty good observers of human nature. Hmm. What's Brooks saying? Brooks saying, yes, I was seeking understanding. I was seeking wisdom at one point and I thought that a better understanding of emotion in the human brain and all of these, these scientific aspects would deliver it. But now I'm disillusioned because it hasn't really enabled me to understand meaning or purpose in a much deeper way. After 10 years, it hasn't offered that much. In fact, if I go to the people, the great writers, who have spent a lifetime struggling with the issues of faith and understanding and meaning and purpose and identity... We haven't discovered that they didn't discover. We haven't discovered anything that they didn't already know a long time ago and haven't struggled with deeply. But what Brooks points out is our constant um, intrigue, perhaps, by what is new, our constant distraction, our constant pursuit of wisdom in the wrong place. Right? As Job uh, at 28 says, 
where can wisdom be found? Mankind is incapable of locating it. And so we run after all kinds of spheres. And, you know, you may not be enamored by neuroscience, but whether you're enamored by um, topics of health or topics of art or topics of uh, science, is it actually offering you wisdom? Or simply books that help you to order your day and your life? Right? Is it actually wisdom? That's the question we have to keep in mind. Now, the first problem is we can't find it. The second problem is we don't value it appropriately. Even if you could find it, would you actually place the value upon wisdom that you should? Uh, The author goes on and on comparing it to all of the great jewels and metals of the ancient world and says over and over again, it can't be weighed in the same degree. It doesn't compare. It can't be exchanged, right? All uh, language of value. And wisdom is so much more valuable than all of these ancient metals. Made me think of, you know, what, do, what have I really valued in my life and invested in? And I thought back to the first thing that as a, as a boy, you know, you grow and you get a job and you start to save money and then you, you kind of lock on to something. And the thing that I wanted, the first big thing I wanted in my life was a mountain bike. Right? And I'd set my eyes on a Cannondale mountain bike. I'd grown up in the hills of upstate New York where lots of mountain biking took place. And I saved and I staved and I took extra jobs and I didn't spend it uh, recklessly until I acquired that which I had set my heart upon, that which I had decided was valuable. Have I ever valued wisdom in that fashion? Have you sacrificed and said no to other things to prioritize the pursuit and the seeking of wisdom? We're, you and I, we're like a person who walks into a 7-Eleven and uh, our desire is for a Coca-Cola and not knowing its price or ask for $100 and we say, sure. Right? That's how bad we are at valuing that which is truly valuable. If we were good at it, we would immensely value wisdom and pursue it far more uh, than we do. But... We have now this great tension that Job 28 has created. If wisdom is so important, but if we can't find it and we don't know how to value it, then how in the world are we going to actually experience wisdom? If it's so inaccessible, what are we going to do? This is the exact tension that comes out in verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? From where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Right, the sharpest eyesight in the ancient world. Abaddon, the place of destruction, and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. Even if you go to the very fringes of the imagined created order, the author of Job 28 is saying, you won't find wisdom. Because it's not something that you're capable of finding. I don't think we think of wisdom very often that way. I think we think of wisdom as something that we can... We can grab on, and we can manufacture, and we can improve upon. But the author here is saying it's not something that you can achieve or ascertain. Verse 23 says that God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. And it goes on about how God has created the heavens and the earth. And in verse 27, and he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. God is the one who has made wisdom. He is the one who has declared it. He is the one who has established it. 
Wisdom does not exist apart from God. Right? So this is, now we're getting warmer. Wisdom cannot be simply a knowledge category. It has to be a relational category. If I am going to have wisdom, it must exist. If wisdom cannot be found, nor valued appropriately apart from God, then to have wisdom, I must have God. I must have more of Him. And this is right where Job has been headed the whole way. Job has longed to see and experience more of God. And that is precisely what's going to happen. And the author jumps in here and says, this isn't simply about Job's trial. It's about the ascertaining of wisdom. And wisdom can only be ascertained as you come in to have greater communion with God himself. And so it concludes uh, in verse 28. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. And we think, okay, well, uh, that sounds familiar. It happens not infrequently in the Old Testament. But think about that for a minute. All right, if we're doing this grand thing, saying wisdom is inaccessible, wisdom can't be valued, and then we say wisdom only exists with God, and then we end up saying that just so wisdom is fearing God and turning away from evil, that's understanding. But isn't that where we started? Wasn't that where Job was? Isn't he the guy that fears God and shuns evil and is utterly upright? That, in some ways, doesn't help us very much. It's it's not different from the beginning, and yet, in, in some ways, it is. In the beginning, at least, the perception is, for fearing God and shunning evil... You're blessed. And now by the time we get to chapter 28, we realize, okay, well, for fearing God and shunning evil, you may not be blessed. You may, for all perceptions case, be cursed. Right? So that's certainly changed. But again, what we're driving at is not simply um, wisdom as it, as it is conceived in something that, um, that is manufactured. You see, the place that we begin in Job is to say... Um, Wisdom, which is fear of God and shunning of evil, is that which uh, manages your relationship to God. Right? That's how you draw near to Him. That's how you receive His blessing. Right? Wisdom is something that you are responsible for to, uh, in terms of managing or navigating your relationship with God. Well, now we get to the place where um, wisdom is not something that is, is going to manage God because He's not manageable. Right? And it's not an economic relationship. God is moving towards, remember, showing up in the flesh. And so we hear, we hear the grinding of the gears that there must be something more and that something more has to be a greater experience of God because wisdom is only bound up with God. And that's the way it, we're looking toward the incarnation. And when the incarnation happens and God shows up in the flesh, this is exactly what we receive, that Jesus says, yes, I am here to unify you to me. And by being unified to me, you will be unified to the Trinity. And in that, in that union, you will have more of God than you ever anticipated. And by having more of God, you will have more wisdom or the opportunity for more wisdom than you ever anticipated. But wisdom is not something that you practice and make and forge in order to have more of me. Having more of me is what yields more wisdom. Right? And this is essentially what Jesus says in John 15. 
I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And so on and so forth. And the grinding of the gears that we see in Job 28, which is fleshed out more fully theologically in John 15, is that wisdom is not the ordering and reordering of your life so that you will have more of God, a la Harvard's instructions. Wisdom, biblically, is that you abide in Christ and having more of God, bear more fruit and exhibit more wisdom. And so the exhortation, chapter 28, should do two things for us as readers. First, you have to be panting for the arrival of God by this point in Job. Like the only hope, not only for Job, but for all of us, is that God shows up. Right? And thankfully, you know, if you know anything about Job, he's, a, he's about to. But the second thing it should do for us is to... I want to use the word shame, but it's a little strong. But it's okay. It, it should shame us for the ways in which we think we can order our lives, and as a result of ordering our lives, we'll experience more of God. It's not... Job 28 is saying, you can't find wisdom, you don't value it, Wisdom only comes with God, right? By being found in Him and abiding in Him, right? Wisdom pours forth from that. So let's go to Him now and seek to abide in Him and receive more of that wisdom. Our Lord Jesus, we praise You this morning. We thank You that You have made it such that we can abide in You in a way that was never foreseen by the book of Job. Would You please forgive us for the ways in which we think we can be wise and make our own wisdom uh, for this very wisdom inhibits us from, uh, from knowing you. Instead, will you help us to confess our foolishness and to uh, repent uh, and to, um, to find ourselves uh, simply resting on you. And out of that, then to know what it is to bear true fruit. Out of that, what it is to bear true wisdom. Would you please order our lives for us? that it might be to your glory and to the good of your kingdom. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.